Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, child abuse, rape, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. As far as 52-year-old Bruce Nickel was concerned, it was just another morning. In June of 1986, the Washington resident woke up, got dressed, and left his sleeping wife, 42-year-old Stella Nickel, as he headed off to work. The second the front door closed behind him, Stella's eyes snapped open. She padded down the mobile home's hallway to the kitchen. There, she opened the cabinet and grabbed two bottles of extra-strength Excedrin. But instead of swallowing a capsule, Stella started splitting them open. Very carefully, she emptied each one and set them aside. Next, she grabbed a large bowl and mixed a batch of cyanide. Then she filled each of the capsules with the cyanide mixture and resealed them. Satisfied with her work, Stella dumped the tampered capsules back into the bottles and returned them to the kitchen cabinet. All she had to do now was wait for her husband to have a headache. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our first of two episodes on the Excedrin killer, Stella Nickel. This week, we'll explore Stella's rough upbringing and childhood trauma. We'll discuss how these early events defined her as an adult. Then we'll cover how her marriage to Bruce Nickel turned so sour that she decided to poison him. Next week, we'll discuss the immediate aftermath of Stella's crime. Then we'll detail the ensuing 18-month investigation, Stella's eventual trial, and the lasting impacts of her case. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. 
they headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Stella was born on August 7, 1943, in Colton, Oregon, to Cora Lee and George Stevenson. She was the fifth child in an already crowded household. Cora Lee was a strong woman, but she had horrible taste in men. George was an alcoholic and a mean one at that. He reportedly had no qualms about beating his wife or his children. One time, George and Cora Lee got into a particularly nasty fight. Things escalated quickly, and before Cora Lee knew what was happening, George pointed his shotgun at her. She screamed for her kids to run. Stella and her siblings scrambled to comply. As they ran, George shot at them. Fortunately, he missed. Regardless, this was the last straw. Cora Lee immediately divorced George. The Stevenson children never saw their father again. Fortunately for Stella, she was so young that she doesn't remember any of the violence. She only knew about her birth father from stories. However, even with George's absence, things were far from perfect. As a single mother, Cora Lee often left her children unsupervised when she went to work. On one such occasion, Stella's older sister, Mary Bell, started to make dinner. But instead of pouring the normal oil used to start the stove, Mary Bell accidentally poured kerosene. The stove exploded. In a panic, Mary Bell tossed the burning can of kerosene outside onto the porch. Unfortunately, that's where five-year-old Stella was playing. The kerosene splattered and hit her. Stella screamed as her leg caught on fire. Fortunately, Stella's mother was almost home from work that night. On hearing the commotion, she raced up the hill, tackled Stella to the ground, and put out the fire. Her quick actions were enough to save her daughter, but it didn't stop Stella from suffering severe burns. To treat them, Stella had to undergo two whole months of skin grafts. Stella stayed upbeat throughout. Even at five, she was remarkably resilient. In 1949, realizing that a second parent on the scene would be helpful, Cora Lee married a trucker named Culver Dewey Kelly. Two years later, eight-year-old Stella got a new baby brother named Joe. However, a baby didn't change the fact that Dewey was a horrible husband. Like Stella's father before him, Dewey was an abusive alcoholic. One night, Stella watched as Dewey walloped Coralie so hard that her dentures went right through her lower lip. As Coralie leaned against the refrigerator to catch herself, Stella stared at the blood running down the side of the appliance. Then Coralie pushed herself up off the refrigerator, regained her composure, and hit Dewey back. Stella stood frozen, watching the whole scene play out, transfixed. Before we continue with Stella's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. 
Stella was both a victim and a witness to physical abuse throughout her childhood. According to a study by physician Melissa Stiles, children who witness violence tend to display inappropriate attitudes about violence as a means of resolving conflict. This phenomenon was borne out in Stella. Even as a child, she often resorted to violence to solve her problems. Once Stella bit her sister Berta and made her bleed simply because she wouldn't get off the phone when Stella asked her to. A few years into their abusive marriage, Coralie divorced Dewey. With Dewey gone, things got even worse for the Stevenson family. On June 18, 1953, Coralie once again left her kids to fend for themselves. Even in the aftermath of the fire incident, she still believed her children were independent enough to stay at home alone. Unfortunately, her kids hadn't learned from the traumatizing event either. In her mother's absence, Stella and her sister Berta once again went to light the stove so they could prepare their afternoon meal. Like her sister had done years prior, Stella began to pour what she thought was regular fuel. It wasn't. It was kerosene again. The stove exploded. The moment felt like history repeating itself, except this time the entire house went up in flames. Stella and her sister raced outside. Their older brother James remained inside as he tried to put out the fire. Ultimately, the blaze was just too strong and he fled in defeat. It was then that all the children simultaneously realized that one of their number was missing. Their little brother, Joe Kelly, was still trapped inside the burning house. He died in the fire. The family each coped with Joe's death differently. Stella's brother James enlisted in the army as a means to deal with his grief. Coralie dated a slew of men to fill the hole in her heart. As for Stella, she also turned to boys to distract her from her pain. By 1958, the teenage Stella's curiosity had turned into experimenting with sex. She had flings with several older boys. Then she started dating Russell. One night, while Stella visited him at his house, Russell invited a friend of his to come over. She thought nothing of it, but the situation allegedly quickly turned once the other boy showed up. Against Stella's will, both boys carried her upstairs. Then Russell tied her hands behind her back with his belt as his friend held her feet down. According to Stella, Russell then raped her. Four months later, 15-year-old Stella realized she was pregnant. Coralie wanted her daughter to marry the father. She told Russell about the baby against Stella's wishes. Russell was eager to marry her, but Stella refused. She had no intention of wedding her abuser. She later said her rejection caused Russell to turn violent. He threatened to hit her in the stomach and kill the baby. He thought this tactic would scare Stella into being with him, but Stella had witnessed abusive men her whole life. She wasn't intimidated by him. Instead, she stated that she stared him straight in the eye and told him, Go ahead. It's your little bastard, not mine. 
After his attempts to intimidate her into marriage, Stella sent Russell packing. However, she still believed that life for her and her baby would be much better if she had a respectable man. Stella knew that 19-year-old Ricky Slauson had always had a thing for her, so she called him up and pretended to be interested in him. The two started dating, and Stella convinced Ricky that the baby was actually his. On October 23, 1959, Stella gave birth to Cynthia Lee Slauson. Stella and Ricky made plans to get married and raise their little girl together, except Ricky backed out at the last moment. He decided he was far too young for such a big commitment. With nowhere else to go, 17-year-old Stella moved back in with her mother and Coralie's new husband, Bill Street. It wasn't long before Stella became acquainted with some of Bill's handiwork. She saw bruises running up and down Coralie's legs, waist, and back. From that, she knew that her mother had managed to find yet another abusive man. Stella could have called the authorities, but she didn't. Instead, she told herself that her mother must have done something to deserve Bill's violent treatment. Stella's warped mindset was due to the fact that she'd been exposed to such abuse all her life. In addition, she'd always seen such unforgivable conduct be excused. So Stella did nothing. What happened in the family stayed in the family. Meanwhile, Ricky Slauson decided that he wanted custody of baby Cynthia after all. As far as he was aware, she was his biological daughter. Stella was furious. Ricky had told her that he didn't want a commitment, and yet there he was fighting to be a father. In that, the truth was undeniable. Ricky was fine with commitment. He just didn't want Stella. This reality was unacceptable, so Stella set out to hurt Ricky. She wrote him a letter laying bare the truth. Cynthia was not his child. She had just manipulated him into believing he was the father. As if that weren't enough, Stella took it a step further. She wrote, Go ahead and try to prove me an unfit mother. Try to take my daughter away. I'll nail you for statutory rape because I was only 15 years old when we started getting together. Stella had always been a firebrand, but this was the first time she'd seriously threatened someone's life. She could go from zero to 100 in an instant. All it took was the right trigger. Up next, Stella's actions escalate from threats of violence to actual violence. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. 
That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. By 1962, 18-year-old Stella had already known a lifetime of trauma. She'd witnessed her mother's abuse at the hands of a series of alcoholic men. She'd lost a sibling in a horrifying fire. And as a teenager, Stella was raped by her boyfriend, resulting in pregnancy. Stella didn't react to these events by falling into a depression. Instead, she acted out by dating a series of older men. Her mother, Cora Lee, warned her that these men only wanted her for one thing. Stella ignored this advice. She promptly met an ex-Air Force official and fell in love. But like Cora Lee had cautioned, he did only want one thing. Once he got it, he moved on to another woman, leaving Stella pregnant and alone once again. To her credit, Coralie didn't say, I told you so, but she insisted that Stella give this child up for adoption. She knew that Stella couldn't handle another baby in addition to her daughter. Furthermore, Coralie didn't have the resources to offer support. So on March 10, 1963, when Stella gave birth to a baby boy, the hospital quickly ushered him away to his adoptive parents. Stella never even saw him. Giving up her baby didn't slow Stella down in the slightest. Almost immediately afterwards, she was back out on the town. That was how 19-year-old Stella met 31-year-old Robert Warren, Bob Strong, in 1963. Bob was instantly smitten with Stella. He loved her carefree attitude and thought he could help make her make something of herself. When Bob made it clear he wanted to marry Stella, Cora Lee may have been even more excited than her daughter. She loved Bob. He was everything a mother could want for her child. He was calm, reliable, and respectful. Cora Lee believed that she wouldn't have to worry about Stella so much if Bob was around. With her mother's blessing, on June 3, 1964, 20-year-old Stella and 32-year-old Bob Strong married in Santa Ana, California. However, Stella's brand-new marriage did nothing to change her behavior. She still went out to bars to drink and catch the attention of men. She welcomed their heated looks and their flirtatious words. If things escalated, Stella slept with them. Stella's receptiveness of male attention wasn't just for her ego. She also got tangible goods out of the exchange. She always came home with new things she couldn't have possibly purchased for herself. Soon, people began to talk. They knew that Stella slept around behind Bob's back. Even Bob knew it. He thought his new wife might be a nymphomaniac. Psychologists often term this condition hypersexuality. According to the Mayo Clinic, those who suffer from hypersexuality often have sexual urges or behaviors that are difficult to control. This was certainly true in Stella's case. Eventually, her inability to control her sexual urges affected her marriage. 
At first, Bob tried to keep up with his wife's sexual demands, but eventually he realized that Stella would never be satisfied. Her appetite far outstripped anything that one man alone could provide. Bob realized that he could either leave his wife or he could accept her as she was. There was no changing Stella. Ultimately, Bob decided to look the other way. He told himself that Stella would get it out of her system eventually. When Stella became pregnant, Bob thought things might change. Instead, Stella gave birth to their daughter, Leah Ruth Strong. And then she got right back out there. Her wayward behavior began to wear on Bob. Furthermore, he didn't like the way that Stella treated their daughters. She was so strict with them, doling out punishments for the slightest infraction. Bob constantly found himself trying to curtail the worst of Stella's anger towards their kids. But one day in January 1969, he wasn't around to calm 25-year-old Stella's temper. For weeks, 10-year-old Cynthia had been using Stella's makeup and stealing her things. She just wanted to look like her mom. It was a child's honest mistake. But Stella didn't see it that way. Instead, she beat Cynthia for not listening. When the little girl went to school the next day, her teachers saw her bruises and questioned her. Cynthia broke down and told them the truth. Her mother had walloped her with a wooden pole. Later that day, the police arrested Stella for child abuse. She spent the night in jail, and when she was released, the cops ordered her to go to counseling. After that, Stella and Cynthia's relationship was never quite the same. After this incident, things seemed to quiet down in the Strong household. Then, in 1970, Stella's cousin, Bonnie Shields Hickson, informed her that she was planning on visiting. Bonnie and her husband were on welfare, so they made arrangements for their checks to be forwarded to Stella and Bob's address. They eventually canceled the trip, but they never told the welfare office. And soon, checks began arriving at the Strong household. 27-year-old Stella snatched them up and cashed them without a second thought. Bob tried to warn her against it, but Stella wouldn't listen. She claimed she was doing it for the kids, but Cynthia and Leah didn't see any benefits from those checks. All the money went straight to Stella. When Bonnie found out, she reported Stella to the welfare department for fraud and forgery. Almost immediately, the authorities showed up to arrest Stella. At first, she denied any wrongdoing, but then the investigator laid out all the evidence. He had the cash checks, the testimony from Bonnie, and the welfare office's records. Once Stella knew she was caught, she admitted to her theft. The court found her guilty of forgery and sentenced her to six months in jail. With Stella safe behind bars, Bob Strong finally had the distance to get over her. He started dating their neighbor, Pat Bilderback. When Stella found out, she was incensed. Sure, she had no strong passions for Bob, but it didn't matter. She wasn't about to let some other woman just waltz in and steal her man. So Stella wrote letters to the court. 
In these missives, she begged them to let her out early, claiming that she had family issues. On October 1971, 28-year-old Stella got her wish. She was released two months ahead of schedule, but she was too late. Bob had already asked for a divorce. Stella wasn't prepared to let go so easily. Her plan was simple. She figured that if she just got Bob into bed, she'd be able to get him to do whatever she wanted. It had worked every other time in her life. This time, however, Stella's charms weren't enough. No matter what she said or did, Bob insisted on the divorce. Bitter about his betrayal, Stella started spreading lies about him. She told people that Bob had committed the welfare scheme and she'd just been the fall guy. Even more unforgivable, Stella started saying that Bob was sexually abusing the girls. Despite the ugliness of such a charge, Stella had no problem with lying if she thought it would get her what she wanted. However, when her daughters refused to echo the molestation claims, Stella was forced to let her vendetta against Bob drop. Shortly after, Stella decided it was time she found a new man. It didn't take long for Stella to meet Eddie Butch Jones. He was a member of the Hessian Motorcycle Club, and Stella quickly fell in with his gang. For a short while, she was Butch's old lady, a term that bikers affectionately gave their girlfriends. This new status meant that every weekend, Stella climbed on the back of Butch's motorcycle and rode around Orange County with him. And then a rumor began to spread. Apparently, Stella wasn't quite as over Bob's desertion as she'd claimed. In reality, she was so upset that she offered to pay one of the Hessians to kill Bob and his new wife. This was yet another sign of Stella's tendency to use violence to solve her problems. Fortunately for Bob, her plan never got off the ground. The Hessians weren't against violence, but they didn't need some guy's girlfriend creating problems for them. So they kicked Stella out of the gang. She was just too much trouble, even for a group of bikers. After Stella got kicked out of the Hessians, Bob Strong made a play for custody of the girls. He pleaded with the court for both Leah and Cynthia, even though Cynthia wasn't his daughter by blood. Worried that Bob would win the custody battle, 30-year-old Stella fled to Washington with her daughters in November of 1973. And it was perhaps that rash flight that caused the court to grant custody of Leah to Bob. When he arrived in Washington, Stella could do nothing to stop him as he took her youngest daughter back to California. However, there was a silver lining. Since Cynthia wasn't Bob's daughter, the courts mandated that she could remain with her mother. And for a while, it was just Stella and Cynthia. And then one month later, Stella met 39-year-old Bruce Nickel at a bar. Like most men, Bruce found Stella enchanting from their very first meeting. Luckily for him, Stella was equally enamored. Neither of them cared that Bruce was already married. It turned out to be a temporary state of affairs. Then just three months after meeting, Bruce and Stella moved into a mobile home trailer together. 
This development didn't sit well with Cynthia. She thought Bruce was mean when he drank, and he drank all the time. It's no surprise then that shortly after her mother moved them in with him, Cynthia packed her bags and moved out. Instead of trying to remedy things with her daughter, Stella simply fell back into old habits. Namely, she started sleeping with other men. Stella claimed that her extracurricular activities were due to the fact that Bruce was too drunk to have sex. Instead of lashing out at his wife's behavior, Bruce desperately wanted to fix their fledgling relationship. He decided to take Stella on a series of camping trips. He hoped that the two of them being alone in nature would strengthen their relationship. Stella had always loved the wilderness, so for a while, Bruce's plans seemed to work. The two grew closer, and Stella decided to stop sleeping around. Bruce was elated. With things going so well, he proposed. Stella said yes, and on September 11, 1976, 33-year-old Stella married 42-year-old Bruce Nickel. Unfortunately, the honeymoon phase didn't last. Soon, Stella was back sneaking out to bars and having sex with other men. In response, Bruce drank more. Eventually, even Stella noticed his alcohol intake. And the more she paid attention, the more she realized that Bruce had a serious problem. Stella became concerned that his alcoholism might kill him. After conveying her worries to Bruce, he finally acknowledged that he needed help. In January 1979, 36-year-old Stella checked him into Schickschädel Hospital for 10 days. The officials at the center promised her that Bruce would receive such severe aversion therapy that he'd never want to drink again. And sure enough, by the end of his stay, Bruce had kicked his desire for alcohol. Stella was thrilled. She believed that this might be enough to change things for them. And it did. But for the worse. As it turned out, Stella hated sober Bruce. Everything she had once liked about him was gone. They no longer went out drinking and dancing. They stopped seeing their friends from town. All Bruce wanted to do was stay home. His new personality meant that Stella often daydreamed about leaving him. In her darker moments, she went further. She fantasized about killing Bruce. Next, Stella considers bringing her dark fantasies to fruition. Now, back to the story. In 1979, 36-year-old Stella Nickel wasn't just bored of her husband, Bruce Nickel. She was actively searching for a way out of her marriage. After a hot and heavy start, Stella quickly found that Bruce was unable to satisfy her sexual appetites. Deciding that his inability to perform was caused by his heavy drinking, Stella encouraged Bruce to go to rehab. When he emerged, he was sober. Initially, this brought the two closer together, but then Stella discovered that she couldn't stand sober Bruce. Much to Stella's relief, in 1980, Bruce left for a job in Alaska. Though the two remained married, 37-year-old Stella was grateful to get some space from her newly sober husband. 
two years after Bruce's departure, Stella's daughter, 23-year-old Cynthia, and her boyfriend, 30-year-old Dave McMurphy, moved to Washington. By this time, Stella and Cynthia had patched up their relationship. Unfortunately, Cynthia's relationship with Dave was less amicable, and soon after arriving in Washington, the couple broke up. Almost immediately, Stella jumped into an affair with her daughter's ex-boyfriend. Stella kept her relationship with Dave a secret. She knew that both Cynthia and Bruce would feel betrayed by the news. However, perhaps Bruce sensed that something was off with his wife because he began calling and checking up on her constantly. Stella felt smothered by Bruce's incessant calls. She wanted to be free to sleep around in peace. When Bruce finally returned from Alaska, Stella was forced to break off the affair with Dave. And in truth, the affair was the least of the Nichols' worries. While Bruce was gone, Stella had been spending all their money. They were now more than $20,000 in debt. Bruce's solution was to take out loans to cover their finances. Stella's solution was to sleep with men who would shower her with gifts and money. While Stella's cheating wasn't a crime, her lifestyle was based on a set of questionable morals. This mindset likely started in her childhood, which was plagued with alcoholism and domestic violence. According to a study by Cambridge's Institute of Criminology, morality is developed at a young age. In fact, young people don't refrain from crime because they fear the consequences. Rather, it's that their morality simply prevents them from even seeing crime as a possible course of action in the first place. Unfortunately for Stella, it seems she never developed this sense of morality as a kid. All she knew was a life of abuse, neglect, and poor values. She did whatever it took to survive in her environment. Thus, crime was always an option. Now, as an adult, she was doing the same thing. She had no internal compass that cautioned her away from engaging in bad behavior. As a result, Stella had no problem engaging in a range of poor choices. Furthermore, it wasn't as though Bruce had the emotional reserves to stop her. He had enough on his plate just trying to stay sober. In 1984, his battle against alcoholism got significantly harder when he lost his job. Instead of responding with compassion to her husband's misfortune, 41-year-old Stella was pissed off. Now she was stuck with a boring husband and a poor one. To help ease the financial strain, Stella's mother, Cora Lee, moved to Washington in May. She bought a piece of land big enough for both her and the Nichols' mobile home trailers. Stella was grateful for her mother's help, but she resented Bruce for not pulling his weight. In the past, Stella had occasionally fantasized about killing him. Now, with their worsened circumstances, she started to seriously consider it. Soon, she was brainstorming various ways that she might pull off a murder. When Bruce found a new job, it did nothing to dissuade her. By then, Stella had decided that she wanted him out of the picture, no matter what. Stella started using her daughter, Cynthia, as a sounding board. In late 1985, 
42-year-old Stella constantly peppered 26-year-old Cynthia with all manner of macabre questions. One day, she asked Cynthia how much cocaine it would take to kill a person. Cynthia gave her best guess in response, but she was uneasy. Why would her mother ask such a question? Eventually, Stella answered Cynthia's silent questions. She told her that she wanted to kill Bruce. Stella thought she could trust her daughter with this confidence. After all, Stella had always lived by the code. What happens in the family stays in the family. Stella grew exceedingly candid with Cynthia over the next few months. She asked her daughter what she thought about slipping some heroin in Bruce's iced tea and hopefully causing him to overdose. Stella even floated the idea of hiring a hitman. But she nixed this option almost as quickly as it occurred to her. A hitman would cost money, and Stella barely had enough to pay her bills. As for Cynthia, she listened to all her mother's murderous chatter calmly. She believed that Stella was just daydreaming out loud. She interpreted her mother's homicidal fantasies as the harmless ruminations of a frustrated wife. Cynthia never thought that Stella would actually go through with any of it. Unfortunately, Stella wasn't just daydreaming anymore. She was determined. The more she considered the idea, the more she decided it was the only way forward. Stella didn't want to divorce Bruce and give up half of the land her mother gifted them, nor did she plan on running away and hiding somewhere. She wanted to stay right where she was. She liked her life. She just didn't like Bruce being in it. And she didn't have to stop at getting rid of Bruce. She could actually arrange things so she'd be able to profit from his death. The couple had their basic life insurance in place. If Bruce died, Stella would get around $35,000. It was a decent chunk of change, but not exactly life-altering. But then, Stella found an interesting clause in the insurance contract. She discovered that if Bruce died of an accidental death, then she would get $135,000. That was more than enough to support the new life she envisioned for herself. All she had to do was make sure Bruce passed his upcoming work-mandated physical. At the conclusion of his medical screening, Stella could drug him without fear of getting caught. In early 1986, after Bruce passed his physical, 42-year-old Stella got to work. She had decided to mirror the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. In that gruesome case, seven people died of cyanide poisoning, and the culprit had gotten away scot-free. Stella believed it was the perfect crime to copycat. She remarked to Cynthia how easy it would be to replicate the capsule tampering and get away with it. Once she'd landed on a method, Stella began doing her research. She started by going to the library. There, she checked out two books on poisoning, Deadly Harvest and Human Poisoning from Native and Cultivated Plants. Both books covered cyanide in extensive detail. However, as Stella researched ways to lace capsules with cyanide, her poor financial decisions came home to roost. 
In April 1986, the Nichols received a notice from North Pacific Bank. The bank informed them that since they hadn't made a single payment on their debt in months, they owed nearly $2,000. Stella knew that she needed to act fast to stave off the incoming financial disaster. So, a few days after receiving the warning, 42-year-old Stella wrote the bank a letter stating, I know that I am tremendously overdue with my payments. There is a good reason for it. I am having marital problems. They are about to be solved, and I would like to ask if you will have faith in me personally. Bruce is no longer involved, and I would like a chance to prove my worth to you. Stella's plan was simple, but diabolical. She would poison Bruce with cyanide-laced capsules, but to keep the suspicion off of her, Stella decided to leave additional tampered Excedrin bottles in stores around town. That way, it would seem completely random, just like the Chicago Tylenol killings. Bruce's death would be ruled an accident, and Stella would receive the full $135,000 in insurance money. With her plan in place, Stella went out to three local stores and bought extra-strength Excedrin from each. Then she stopped by a photography store and purchased a bag of cyanide potassium. When she returned home, she took the Excedrin bottles and carefully opened them. Then she emptied out several capsules and refilled them with cyanide. After that, Stella resealed the capsules, taking note of which bottle was which. Then, on June 1st, she sent a payment to North Pacific Bank, along with another note. In it, Stella wrote, My payments will now stay current. In this note, it was clear. Stella was confident that she would kill her husband, receive the insurance payment, and pay back all her debts. Two days after sending the telling letter, Stella carried out the final stages of her plan. She returned to the local shops and placed the tampered Excedrin bottles back on the shelves. And then, finally, D-Day arrived. On June 5, 1986, 42-year-old Stella Nickel patiently waited for Bruce to return home from work. Shortly after coming in, he complained about a headache. Stella was at the ready with four capsules of cyanide-laced extra-strength Excedrin. She handed them over like a dutiful and loving wife. Bruce took them without a second thought. As he swallowed, Stella waited with bated breath. She knew that it would only take a few minutes. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Stella Nichols' story. We'll see the aftermath of Bruce's death, how a second victim died, and how the police eventually caught Stella. For more information on Stella Nichol, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bitter Almonds, Mothers, Daughters, and the Seattle Cyanide Murders by Greg Olson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.